Welcome and happy birthday. I'm your host and excitable train station ticket booth clerk, Mike Westfall. Joining me today is my guest, an evil magician's reformed pet rabbit and general stuff enthusiast from blessedarethegeek.tumblr.com. Brandon Medley is here. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Mac. How's it going? It's great. Thank you for agreeing to be my first guest on my Christmas specials podcast, which I'm pleased to announce we're recording live from inside the Griswold family's tiny advent calendar house from Christmas Vacation. I've always loved that house. It's great, right? Uh, yeah. It's a lot roomier inside, you would think. It's like the TARDIS of Advent calendars. Yeah, bigger on the inside. Exactly. And, you know, I'm a Westfall. I have a thing for tiny buildings surrounded by snow. It runs in my family. Okay. That's a St. Elsewhere joke. <laughs> uh, sorry, never watched that one. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> there goes that. But that's the gimmick here. We're in a tiny house. To take a look at the classic Frosty the Snowman was a jolly happy soul. With a corn cup pipe and a button nose and two eyes made out of coal. Frosty the Snowman, which debuted on December 7th, 1969. Also debuting December 7th, 1969, late comedian Patrice O'Neill, and I found zero other interesting things that happened that day. Try as I might. Well, at least Patrice O'Neill was more enjoyable than this special. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when I first asked um, who wanted to be a part of this, and you and some other people spoke up on Twitter, you immediately said you had some issues of this, and I would love to hear about them. Okay, um, well, I watched this again earlier today, and I just told you earlier I have three pages of notes while watching it. Um. You know, I grew up without cable, so anytime a cartoon was on in prime time, it was an event, you know, the special. So I grew up watching Frosty every Christmas. Um, it usually came on, I think, the same night as Rudolph on CBS. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I loved it then when the advent of DVDs where you could get all of these things. Of course, I bought it and I watched it pretty much every year until about two years ago. You know, I was into my 30s and I said, you know what? This this sucks. I don't have to keep watching it every year if I don't want to. And so I think two years ago was the first Christmas that I can remember that I didn't watch it and I didn't miss it. <laughs> what about it sucks to you? I'm trying to think. I mean, I watched it again every year. I watch it and it's like, it's fine. It's a Christmas special. It's what it needs to be. It seems to be jolly and happy. Like, it is it it's, my soul to be? I don't know. I, I find this one, it's barely a Christmas special. If it wasn't for the fact that they say that it's Christmas Eve at the beginning and Santa, Santa shows up at the end, but the rest of it could just be a generic winter tale. Um, yeah, you do drive a good point there. And I, and I have noticed that about a lot of our, our Christmassy songs are just, it's winter. And okay. I'm a school teacher. And so, the part that always sticks out to me at the beginning, and it stuck out to me when I was a school student as well, is who goes to school on Christmas Eve? That's right. It's Christmas Eve at the beginning of the special. I remember. Yeah, it's Christmas Eve, and they're at school, and the teacher says, I hired a magician for our <laughs> Christmas party. That just, a magician for a Christmas party, first of all, doesn't make sense. And as a teacher... I'm not spending my hard-earned money on a magician for the party. <laughs> Parents are going to send some cupcakes or something. 
There you go. I'm not sure how much money was uh, spent on Professor Hinkle, the, quote, worst magician in the world. Self-proclaimed evil magician at that. Evil. So if the teacher is going to hire a magician, why is she hiring an evil magician? What was she hoping to accomplish? I want to know if that was on his business card or not. That's a good point. So I think, okay, I love Christmas specials. I love all the consumerist, commercialist trappings of Christmas as much as every other red-blooded American. But Frosty the Snowman, both, um, you know, okay, I did the research today. I looked up, like, when did the special come out? I knew it was in the late 60s. As you said, it was 1969. I looked up, when did the song come about? And it was written in 1950 and originally recorded by Gene Autry, just like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And they recorded it the year after Rudolph had become a hit. You know, Rudolph at least begins with the idea of Santa and the reindeer and then creates this original character that becomes part of popular culture. Frosty just, they're like, well, that was a hit. Let's just make something else up. And a snowman. And there's not much to it. Like the song itself has nothing to do with Christmas. Um, I don't think Christmas is mentioned at all. Like there's an old silk hat. He comes to life. He leads the kids on a parade, runs afoul of the traffic cop. And then they, he leaves town before he melts. They do all that. And before the first commercial break on the special, they do songs over and then they keep going it. Yeah, it is right before the commercial break. I remember right there while they're still on the train. And so. This special then reminds me a lot of another newer beloved Christmas movie that also gets on my nerves, um, The Polar Express. Oh, we'll um, be talking about The Polar Express on another episode. But, but well, I won't go too far into it, but similar to The Polar Express, you know, it's a beautiful children's book. I grew up reading it, and then I was an adult by the time they made the movie, and it's like, it's a pretty slight book. So they have to fill the movie with lots of wacky hijinks and to make it fill a runtime. And this, the second 15 minutes of the 30 minutes are filled with a lot of stuff. (laughs) It is a lot of stuff. There was a whole, what is it? It feels like it must've been only two minutes long, but it feels like 10 where the ticket flies out the window and then it goes rolling into the snow and then eaten by a pack of wolves and then it goes flying into the air and then a giant eagle tries to feed it to his children and then back in the train again. Yeah, and I had even forgotten all that part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so Frosty, just the song and then the special... Much like I said, I recognize that all Christmas specials are essentially just cash grabs, but this one feels much more cynical in the fact that it's just a cash grab. It just seems like the Rudolph special and song have a certain charm to them that I just find really lacking here. And, you know, the Rudolph and all the other Rankin Bass, my big question is why do they have the traditional animation? All the other Rankin Bass have this, you know, the stop motion animation. And it's very, it's a charming looking. That it seems like whether they're varying levels of good, but they at least have some care put into them. This one feels like they just did it in a hurry. Well, this is I looked it up, and this is Rankin Bass's fourth TV Christmas special, following Rudolph, and then Cricket on the Hearth, and then Little Drummer Boy was the year before in 1968. I don't remember if Cricket and a Hearth was traditionally animated or not. It was. Yeah, I don't. I'm not familiar with that one. 
But so it was still early and going forward in time to the other rank of bass specials, they did a good jumping around between traditional animation and stop motion. Uh, as far as the rest of their history goes, um, holiday special and non-holiday special, I'm thinking particularly they had that, the Hobbit movie was animated a lot. Well, not like this one, but, um, but some of the other Christmas ones that comes after this, it's very spot on by that Hobbit one. So this yeah. might be one of the first. So they're playing around with all the different mediums and how much I forget they can grab. Yeah, I forget about the Hobbit being Rankin Bass. When I think Rankin Bass, I just think of these Christmas specials. I think it's the one "Twas the Night Before Christmas" where you have the mouse who has to fix. The yeah, that looks and exactly. That looks like very similar to this, and that's what tips me off that it's the same company and it has been the whole time. Yeah, but what's interesting is if you watch the sequels they make to Frosty, the first one, Frosty's Winter Wonderland, he's animated again. But then if you go to Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July, they swap him to the stop motion to match Rudolph. And I'd like the design much better in that special. I'll agree Um, with you there. Yeah. But then he's got a wife and kids, which opens up a lot of other questions. But we're talking about Frosty tonight. (laughs) Well, you you just build them. I guess. um, You know, and... His wife is played by Shelley Winters, um, who had a long career, but for most people our age, um, know her most as Nana Mary from Roseanne. Yes. Oh, wow. I never made that connection. Yeah. Um, Crystal was the Crystal. his wife's name. And then the his, they have twins, or I assume they're twins. They look the same, just a boy and a girl, um, if I remember correctly. And the... Christmas in July, named Millie and Chili. Well, Chili makes sense, but Millie's just, well, we gotta pick something that rhymes for no reason, because you're a twin. You're the second twin, sorry. But but that Christmas in July is kind of like the Avengers of the Rankin-Bass Christmas specials. They bring in everybody from all of them. (laughs) They got Jack Frost, and Rudolph, and Frosty, and some others. The male guy from Christmas Santa's coming to town. Oh, Fred Astaire. Yeah. Fred Astaire. Yeah, I don't think he's actually doing it at that point, but... Getting back, it starts with just building this snowman, and then they got to figure a name of them, and they finally settle on Frosty after they just deride this one kid on picking oatmeal, and everybody just looks at him like, oatmeal? Oatmeal's a great name. I thought so, too. I was like, when I watched the day, I was like, no, you should have gone with oatmeal. That's way more memorable. Way more memorable and way better than the idea that came right before that, Christopher Columbus. And then the other one yeah. was just like, Harold, Bruce, I don't know. Christopher Columbus? No. And kids like, oatmeal? And they just, oatmeal. Yeah, um, I think oatmeal. If we were talking about oatmeal, the snowman tonight, I would probably be much less critical of it. <laughs> Could be. So I will say the one character I really like in this special is Hocus Pocus the Rabbit. Hocus Pocus. Um, I think he's got the most personality, even though he doesn't talk. And the few kind of chuckle-worthy moments come from him, trying to, like when he's telling Santa to bring the military in and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, not the Marines. And it's Frosty. Frosty's voice was provided by comedian Jackie Vernon. 
who sounds yeah. basically exactly like that, and a few of his lines are taken straight from his catchphrases, when it's just like, what a neat way to travel. That was a bit that they mm. threw in as a kind of a wink to the grown-ups watching. Okay, see, okay, I'm not familiar with Jackie Vernon prior to Frosty, but I did make note of a role he played after Frosty. Oh, do tell. Um... The 1983 sleazy horror movie Microwave Massacre. Have you seen this? Microwave Massacre? I have not. Okay. Well, I don't know how family-friendly we're getting here, so I'm going to step tiptoe around some of this. But it's Frosty, and like you said, he this is his normal speaking voice. So if you've grown up watching Frosty, this is just, hey, that's Frosty in this movie. Um. And in the movie, he plays this guy. He's, he's like this blue-collar guy. He's got a wife. And it's 1983, so the idea of microwaves are new. And she's bought this nice microwave. And she's trying to cook these fancy dinners for him in the microwave, which we can roll our eyes about now. But she was doing what she considered gourmet cooking in the microwave. Well, she would make these meals for him, and he would complain about him. He was very sexist and misogynist in the whole movie. And he takes him to work as lunch the next day and the other guys are all eating bologna sandwiches and stuff. And they mock him for having these fancy meals and, and he is mad and he goes home and he's telling his wife, why well, you got to keep cooking these things? And he ends up killing her. Oh. And then for some reason, eating her after he cooked her in the microwave, if I remember correctly. And anyway, he then becomes, he starts hunting down prostitutes and killing them and eating them. There's a line and you hear it in Frosty's voice. And Frosty goes, happy birthday. But here you've got, I'm so hungry I could eat a whore. That's disturbing. That seems to be, that seems to be the trend of what I'm reading about Jackie Bird and Hannah's comedy. But it's like that. And then he kind of ends things like, what a neat guy. But then you yeah. have some other characters uh, whose voices are very recognizable if you follow this sort of thing. You have Paul Freeze as the traffic cop and the train ticket booth guy and Santa Claus. Paul Freeze um, yeah, for so many roles, but uh, for me, he is the voice The ghost the host point. being the my favorite. Exist. I am your host. Your ghost host. <laughs> From the Haunted Mansion at Disney. So, which... I'm not sure when I put that together, but at some point in my 20s, I put that together watching Frosty the Snowman. It makes it a lot more fun to watch, at least for me, especially yeah. when he's Santa Claus. And yeah, and Paul Freese is one of those guys that when he's in things, he's usually doing multiple voices because he's a really talented voice actor. Oh, he's so versatile, but you can still recognize it him, which yeah. I kind of admire in, in voice acting when you can tell it's somebody. My daughter... Uh, my oldest daughter, who's six, is starting to pick up that some characters and some of her favorite shows kind of sound the same. So it's like, yeah, hey, this I remember, I remember when I was probably about her age picking up on that. I think it was Baloo and Little John. Oh, and, well, that's a dead ringer. You know, that is the classic example. It, they they look the same too, so it really helps. But then, and but then I remember hearing Phil Harris is the actor's name. Um, I think so. Hearing him in some other role. I think it was also a Disney role, but I can't put together which one it is now. Um, oh, the Aristocats. Oh, yeah. That one? Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, you start to hear Verna Felton in a lot of the Disney animated movies. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, I know what she's going through. <laughs> <laughs> Jungle Book and Robin Hood and that whole that late sixties through the seventies stretch, they just use a lot of the same animators and the same animation cells even. Uh yeah. the voice actors. Another good example would be uh Sterling Holloway who's caught a snake in the jungle book and then comes back and it's Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, and he but he's also going back to Dumbo. He's the stork in Dumbo, I believe. Oh, that's right. Oh, it goes all the way back. Yeah. Um, him and Verna Felton, especially, they had things going back from at least as early as Dumbo into the 50s, 60s, 70s. Wow. Mm-hmm. But getting back to voice actors in Frosty, um, I was reading that June Foray, who we recently lost, um, yes. had originally recorded the voice of Karen, but then they dubbed over her with another voice. I also read that, and I'm kind of bummed. That but I couldn't. No, neither could I. You couldn't find a trace of this original recording, could you? Yeah, I couldn't find out why exactly they recorded, they dubbed her over either. I mean, she's a very talented voice actor, and the one that we have, and I don't even didn't even write down the name. I mean, she you wasn't terrible, but I couldn't find a name. Okay, I didn't either. I didn't. I knew I didn't write it down, but like. I mean, she went bad, but she wasn't memorable by any means. Oh, yeah, no. I'm, now I'm imagining an entirely different timeline where June Foray is the voice of Karen and all of these, and she sounds like Rocky the Flying Squirrel. <laughs> but no, I don't think any of the kids that were recorded afterward that replaced June Foray as the kids were credited at all. And what? Okay, this is just me nitpicking, but one of my big things I see all the time that's like a grammar nitpick is unnecessary quotation marks because like are you being sarcastic or not um if you notice in the opening credits it'll have you know um paul freeze as the near as the whatever and then at the end it's and jackie vernon as quotation marks frosty (laughs) is is he frosty or is he quote unquote frosty yeah um my parents do that or at least used to do that uh, in emails back and forth, but they'll use it as emphasis. Yeah. They'll say, it was great to hear from you. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Exactly. There's, um, I tried to start a Tumblr one time of taking pictures of signs. Um, with It, it was going to be called Unnecessary Quotation Marks, but surprisingly, <laughs> someone else already had that on Tumblr. Okay, and was I was doing nothing say, with it. If that doesn't already um, exist on Tumblr. I'm going to be very surprised. But and it, it started because I see it a lot of places. But down the street from where I live, there's this little shop that makes jellies and things like that. And I mean, they sell it in a little gift shop there. They actually have like distribution with Whole Foods and stuff. But on their sign, it says quotation marks homemade jams and jellies. Like. Did you make it there or not? Like, is it homemade because of quotation because you made it in a shop? I don't know. It's confusing. That's a bit disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> I've also seen quotation marks thank you on a sign as you're leaving. That's um, funny. Like, but in Frosty, I think Frosty's death scene is so avoidable. This is one of my nitpicks with the special. First of all, maybe if you weren't wearing a mini skirt in the snow, you wouldn't be so cold, Karen. Right, they go in the icebox. 
we're going to rewind a bit about that whole train ride and her not wearing any pants in this ice box in a train, but continue. Yeah. And then Frosty, they find this random greenhouse in the middle of nowhere. And Frosty's like, well, I can't go in there because I'll melt, but I'll go in there anyway, just for a minute. But why go in there at all? All he had to do is put her in there and he could have stayed outside in the snow. Right? Guard the place. Yeah. And it's almost like they're trying to make Frosty, like I wrote down Frosty as Christ figure, question mark. Like Probably. He sacrifices herself and stuff, but then he gets to come back. But it was such an avoidable death. It was avoidable death. Well, I mean, if you even call it a death. I'm not sure how greenhouses work, but do they even lock from the outside? Could she just open the door? Yeah, I don't know. Um, didn't Hinkle lock him in? Right. Well, he locked him in, but he was still outside. They were trapped inside. And then yeah. Santa comes and he hides. He makes a break for it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I just feel like, and if nothing else, it's why can't they just break a window? It's made of glass. <laughs> the world will never know. There were ways they could have gotten out of this. <laughs> Absolutely. And then Santa coming at the end and resurrecting Frosty. Santa has this whole speech about, well, Frosty is made of Christmas snow, and Christmas snow never really disappears. It'll come back as a spring rain and yada, yada, yada. Um, well, Santa, isn't this true of all snow if it just goes through the water cycle? and so is it, was he brought to life by the magic of the hat or by the magic of the Christmas snow? Which is it? That is a very good point. I mean, yeah, it's true to all snow that it turns into spring rain. And yeah, I've always bought in that the Christmas snow had some kind of magical property that brought Frosty to life, forgetting at that point that the hat was magic. Yeah. And going back to the hat and Hinkle, Hinkle seems surprised that the hat is magic but at the beginning like he's reaching his hand in there and can't find the rabbit but then the rabbit comes out i mean that to me seems like well it must be magic then well (laughs) that to me seems to draw the line between well what is a magician really and what is a magician sort of magic tricks really it's all just sleight of the hand tricks yeah which you buy and then Whoa, this hat really is magic. It's some kind of brings this snowman to life. What's going on? And then he wants it back. And then that brings up the question, at what point does something you throw away stop being yours? Well, Mike, you had put this in the ideas to consider list. So I went on Reddit to the subreddit legal advice. Or ask a lawyer, I think is maybe what it's called. Wow. And I asked some lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and just it, you know, our narrator says, says it's important to know that the children did nothing wrong here in taking the hat. Jimmy Durante is the narrator and he's just, he's got this grovelly voice. And if you've ever heard anyone do this, Gravelly doggy daddy from Hanna Barbera voice. They're doing an impression of Jimmy Durante from back yeah. back in the thirties and forties and all the way here in the sixties. It's this guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. 
Well, he's right about the children doing nothing wrong. Um, according to the two or three lawyers who answered my questions, they said that, um, you know, of course, there might be slight differences depending on jurisdictions, but that once you have thrown something out and made the intent of throwing something, of, you know, disowning something, you have no claim to it anymore. That's what I picked up, too. I found just a few news stories where people ask that same question, and the consensus seems to be garbage is public property when it's on the curb. Yeah. So that part is legit. But that part, as a kid, always bothered me. It's like, well, yeah, but did the hat belong to Frosty and the children? That's how he put it. Oh, the hat belonged to Frosty and the children. It didn't belong yeah. to anybody, but I'll buy into your game, old man Jimmy Durante. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I always felt like if anybody had a claim to the hat, it was Hocus Pocus. That's a good point. He seemed to be okay like, giving it to the snowman. There you go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and he gave it to him. He was fine, but he was the one who got thrown out with it and then later brings it back. He was the one that seemed to care about the hat more than the magician. And, yeah, I mean, he gave it, it to some Frosty, so I guess he was okay with that. Yeah, it was his home. But back to... um. When Santa comes with Hinkle at the end, this is where Hinkle calls himself an evil magician. Whenever Santa's saying, like, you won't get any presents or something like that. He says, well, what are those evil su magicians supposed to do? And Santa just thinks it's also funny. And I wondered, like, why is Santa bringing gifts to evil magicians to begin with? I thought you had to be good to get gifts from Santa. Santa's, I don't know if politics is the right word, but... I think because it's Christmas Eve and Santa's open to last-minute redemption is kind of a good story and that brings back his saintly nature so i'll okay. let him get off with that but the penance mm. that he gives to mm, instead of like a second great teacher <laughs> yes wants him to write i am very sorry for what i did to frosty a hundred zillion times yeah which okay let's say i figured out how long it would take me a grown adult and non-evil magician to write, I am very sorry for what I did to Frosty. Took me about 12 seconds. So that's about five times per minute, 300 times per hour. <laughs> let's say it looks like it's pretty late there. So let's say he gets home from wherever he was close to the North Pole back to where I believe this is set. According to one town in upstate New York, they seem to stake the claim on where Frosty the Snowman, the, the original song, was set in Armonk, New York. And every year, they have an annual Frosty parade because uh, he comes back someday to the town to join in this parade. I think parade. I've heard of this parade before. Yeah, I've never heard of it until I did the research for this episode. So, all right, Hinkle's writing about... 500 or 600 lines if he doesn't take a break and he really, really wants a new hat. And so, so he'll fall asleep at midnight and Santa comes and not even close to 100 zillion. I did the math and to write it one million times nonstop without sleeping or eating starting on Christmas Eve would take until May 12th. Okay. So maybe Santa's punishment Maybe Santa's not really being all that kindly here. Maybe he's giving him this, like some kind of Sisyphean task, knowing that he's not going to ever finish it in any reasonable amount of time, and he's just screwing around with him. Could be that. Could be just writing until your hand is sore, and you are legitimately sorry, and not just trying to get a hat. 
True. Um, we're probably putting way more thought into this than the people who wrote it did, but that's what podcasts are for, right? As we do. <laughs> Another thing I'm about to put way too much thought in, let's talk about this train route when they go okay. and buy the ticket. Okay? So we already established that Frosty takes place in the town of Armok, New York, and this um, train route that the ticket booth clerk tries to sell them for $3,000.04, including tax, goes from New York to Saskatchewan, Hudson Bay, Nome, Alaska, the Klondike, and Aurora Borealis. If you look at that on a map, it's just... This route makes no more sense. You're going to New York to Saskatchewan, and you have to basically go kind of west-northwest through the United States up through North Dakota just to get into the province of Saskatchewan and then back northeast to Hudson Bay and then back westward to Nome, Alaska, which is the western end of Alaska, then up to the Klondike, which is back east up in the Yukon Territory, and then Aurora Borealis, which is either up or in Seymour Skinner's kitchen. I'm not sure. (laughs) Aurora Borealis. At this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. I, um, like you, was trying to look at a map and trying to put all these places in, and it just confused Google Maps. They didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I kind of had a general idea where these things were. And I was like, so basically, this is just back and forth across the Canadian continent. And then to the sky? Isn't the Aurora Borealis like the northern lights? Yes. Um, I guess that's how you're getting to the North Pole. You have to fly on Santa's sleigh. But then I thought about, okay, here was my question. We've got a lot of tundra and ice caps and things we got across. I'm wondering how climate change is affecting the integrity of that railroad. Well, it is the 60s, and they haven't thought of that yet. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's still in existence now. The good news is they don't take that train route. They go outside. They see a boxcar on a train that's just headed north and not east and west and east and west, or west and east and west and east. So why charge them $3,000? Yeah. They were just trying to rip them off. He saw a kid, a snowman. A snowman who was just born today and is really stupid about a lot of things, but yet other things he seems very worldly about. But we're not really consistent on that. Um, so maybe that train station guy is just a scam artist. So you think it's just an all elaborate ruse? He's on to their game. You don't have any money. You're children and a snowman. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably better people to try to squeeze $3,000 out of than a eight-year-old and a snowman. Could be. Right. But they get as close as they can to the North Pole, and Professor Hinkle kind of uh, Cape Fierce his way onto the train. And we've gotten to the part about the greenhouse, and he thinks he's gotten his day, but Santa comes in and saves the day, and then brings Frosty back to life by putting a hat on him, and everybody has a grand old time, drops Karen back off, just drops her off on the roof. Did you notice that? That you just, all right, drops Karen off on the roof of what seems to be at least a three-story tall building. Is it her house? I don't know. I mean, I assume Santa knows. Surely Karen's old enough to know whether that's her house or not. I don't know. Maybe there's a fire escape or something. It didn't look like it. It looked like she would have to climb down the roof there just to 
get to the closest window. But that leads me to our final question. Where's the dumbest place you've ever been dropped off, Brandon? Uh, I thought about this and thought about this. And I really don't have good... I don't... I generally drive myself places. I couldn't think of a good one. Um, Except... This is the best I could do. I go to Disney World a lot, and if you take the Disney buses around the property, they drop you off in inconvenient locations <laughs> instead of just taking you to the gate, which is where you want to go. Yes, well, as someone so. who lives down here in Orlando, I can confirm that, that that is the case. They dump you off in the most random places right outside of the parks there. Oh, that's such a good answer. Yeah, um, the last one last year when I ran the Star Wars half marathon down there, mm-hmm. To get dropped off for the race, I had to get dropped off at the taxi parking lot at Epcot. But they were do, doing the staging on the other side of the Epcot parking lot. There's a giant empty parking lot in between, but they wouldn't let us <laughs> drop off any closer. And then you finish the race at the Wide World of Sports and had to wait on a bus to get taken back to the place where you started the race instead of back to where your car was on the other side of the Epcot parking lot. So maybe that's the answer. <laughs> That is, that's a good answer. That beats my answer of in front of my neighborhood when I live in back of it in a taxi because I don't even remember who I was with at the time, but I was with some friend and we took the taxi home because we were too drunk to drive home. But he decided, let's just get off here and not go into the neighborhood. I don't know if whoever was with me was not comfortable with letting a professional taxi driver who's on the clock know where they live or what, but it was at least 10 or 12 blocks away, and we had to walk, and I think it was Thanksgiving week, so it was pretty cold, but for some reason I just connected that experience with being a dumb place to be dropped off, and Santa dropping off Karen on the roof, yeah. but I like your I like your answer so much better because it is so on the money. And I know exactly where you're talking about, that Epcot parking lot. Back in the day, like when they don't have marathons and things, there used to be a trick where if you knew that you could do this, you could just follow one of the green lines on the pavement and just say, oh, we're dropping off a pet at the kennel. And whoop, you don't have to walk so far. But but they got smart on us, so uh, they don't let you do that anymore. Yeah. So my father-in-law talks about that they always, whenever, um, my wife is from Gainesville. Okay. And so her family, you know, would go to Disney even more. Like I'm from South Georgia. We went, you know, once every couple of years. They went a lot. Um, and he talks about when they were kids, they just always went, we're having breakfast at the Wilderness Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> and always, and they often did have breakfast there, but then they would park there. <laughs> oh, yeah. We used to, do, Not, we still do that every once in a while. We'll go to Polynesian Village and say, yeah, we're going to Kona Cafe. No, we're not. Yeah. Um, I won't say we're not guilty of that every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brandon, if anyone who happens to be listening to this wants to drop you a line onto your roof, where can they find you? Well, um, the primary place would be on Twitter. I am at BrandMed. That's B-R-A-N-D-M-E-D. As you said before, on Tumblr, it's Blessed Are the Geek, which is also the Instagram name because um, someone else had BrandMed. But Twitter is generally my main place on the web to find me. Great. Well, Brandon, thank you again for joining me on this first episode. Hopefully this will turn out wonderfully and there will be more to this from here. But 
All right. Well, this is fun. This was so much fun. Thank you. This was yeah. great. All right. Well, thanks for inviting me to be part of this. Absolutely. Thanks again. On the next episode of the Advent Calendar House podcast, you know, that starts with the letter P. I'm joined by CT of the Nerd Lunch podcast as we try to count how many Muppets can fit inside a farmhouse. We're going to try and get a head count of guests in a very special salute to 30 years of a Muppet family Christmas. Did you see Big Bird? Was he there? I can't remember. No, I think I spotted him at the end. You can find this show at adventcalendar.house and on Twitter at adventcalhouse. Please watch out for the icy patch.